We have NPR's national security correspondent Greg Meyer here today if he wants to uh, introduce himself a little bit. Uh, hi there. I'm really glad to be here. I work in Washington and I cover uh, U.S. intelligence agencies, uh, foreign policy, a uh, wide range of stuff. Got a lot going on these days and uh, happy to answer your questions. Awesome. Thanks, Greg. So, yeah, if you have any questions for Greg, text him at 970 491 5278. That's 970 491 5278. And we'll try to get to them if we have time. But we're just going to go ahead and get started here. So, Greg, you have over 20 years of experience in journalism investigating foreign policy and national security. Right now, what's going on in the world that you think that United States citizens should be paying the most attention to? I, China, I, I think, in a word, in a country. Um, I, it's hard to get a lot of information out of China because both Chinese journalists and foreign journalists working there um, are not allowed to report and write freely. And yet, along with the United States, these really are the two most important countries in the world right now and will be for the decades to come. So I think the combination of so much that's happening in that country and so much that we can't really see, and, and just most recently with the coronavirus, Virus. Um, it's, you know, there's a lot of questions about how accurate the, the government information has been. We've seen where they've tried to cover up information because it looks bad. So I, I think for all of these reasons, um, I encourage people to, to seek out as much as they can on, on China, which is not a, a story that's in the headlines every day, but a very important place. So what would be a good way for people to learn more about what's going on in China? Well, uh, NPR uh, would be one way. We have always had two uh, correspondents in China, very good correspondents, uh, one in Shanghai, one in Beijing. It's gotten harder for them uh, to, to travel around and report. Uh, we've certainly seen that. People who These are people who've, who've worked there on and off for maybe 10, 15, 20 years, and they see and have never seen it so challenging. And then uh, there's other big media publications, whether it's the New York Times, uh, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, some of the British newspapers that also have good uh, China coverage as well. Awesome. I am interested um, that you brought up China because in a lot of my classes, a lot of political science uh, scientists are saying that China could become a bigger superpower than America. What are your thoughts on that? Well, China is going to become a very powerful country. We know that. And I'm, I'm not even sure how you measure, you know, who's the bigger superpower. But the the rate that we've seen China develop economically and in and, and and other fronts has, has absolutely been extraordinary in my, in my adult lifetime. Now, China's got a lot of problems, too. And these, this is what we don't see. They have lots of protests um, that just don't make the news because those kinds of protests that might get covered in the U.S. or in other countries countries don't get covered there. Um, issues, as we've seen with the coronavirus or financial problems, or a lot of times there's there's a lot of doubt about government statistics. When they say the economy is doing this well, there's some doubt about that. So um, the U.S. And, the, and China are going to have to learn, are in an interesting position because at some levels they're going to be adversaries, sort of mil, uh, the military role they both want to play in the Pacific. In other ways, they have to cooperate when it comes to global trade, when it comes to combating something like the the coronavirus or uh, terrorism or, or something else. So it, it's going to be a very interesting, difficult, fraught relationship because of this combination of needing to cooperate on some issues and, and be rivals or adversaries on others. That uh, relates pretty cleanly to what we wanted to know next. Uh, how do you think this country's global standing, by this country I mean, of course, the United States of America, how do you think our global standing looks at the moment? 
Um, not, not great. I think we've seen um, a, a real doubt and sense of where is the U.S. going, uh, where is the U.S. headed. And I, and I don't want to point at, at a president or administration. I think there's a lot of division in this country. Um, getting our political system to work well um, is a real challenge. There used to be, right after World War II, there was a senator who said famously that politics ends at the water's edge, that that when we go we talk about foreign policy the country should be united and you're not a republican or a democrat you're an american and there needs to be a consensus and to help the president uh, pursue the policy he wants to pursue and we've seen i think in the last 10 or 20 years uh, before this administration that really break down and foreign policy uh, become just another battleground for politicians and and again even the impeachment hearings um, had, a, had a big foreign policy uh, component to it and and it was also very much a bitter political issue. Wow, yeah, I didn't even know that quote existed. (laughs) All right, to change topics a little bit, um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but today is actually Safer Internet Day, and that relates to this next question, which is that there appears to be an increasing, uh, an increase in global focus on cybersecurity and cyber terrorism. And how do you think the U.S. compares to the rest of the world on this? So the U.S. has still has the most sophisticated uh, cyber capabilities, whether you're talking about the government and the National Security Agency or whether you're just talking about private companies. But other countries are, are catching up fast. And I think what we've seen, particularly in the last uh, few years, has been this emphasis that cybersecurity, cyber terrorism, this is not just a government problem. It's not just for the FBI or other government agencies to prevent. Yes, that's part of what they do. But we're seeing uh, other countries try to steal U.S. technology st- secrets, break into the U.S. financial system. We saw, we had a case yesterday where four uh, Chinese members of the Chinese army were indicted for breaking into the Equifax credit system, stealing 145 million uh, records of Americans on their credit policy, their credit scores. Um, so this is the kind of thing. So it's not just um, spies trying to s- steal government secrets or military secrets. They're trying to steal financial secrets, uh, health secrets. Universities, cutting-edge research at university has also been a big target uh, by the Chinese and by others. And I think there's a, a greater awareness of this now, but there's still a lot of issues out there. So would you say we put enough resources into funding cybersecurity, or we should be focusing even more on protecting our cybersecurity. I, I think it's an, uh, what you'll, the, the experts that, I, that I'll talk to will say it, it's, it's certainly about focus. Uh, they would certainly like to see companies um, and individuals and universities spend more emphasis on uh, learning how to protect themselves. Um, and, and that can often involve more money. But a lot of it is just awareness of, you know, learning uh, to avoid uh, spear phishing and, and common sense things. Still the most common um, way that uh, a foreign, uh, whether it's the Russians, the Chinese, or, or just um, a foreign individual hacker, is, is still just spear phishing, and people will click on an email and click on an attachment without, uh, without uh, being suspicious of that. Alrighty. I was wondering if you could touch on the role the U.S. plays in geopolitics. Well, I think that the U.S. is going through a real uh, challenging period right now where the U.S. has been the world leader in politics and in military might and and has the world's largest economy really since the end of World War II, often working through institutions like the United Nations, NATO, the World Bank, the IMF that the U.S. has built. 
And there's been a sense, I think, from this president and a lot of his supporters that it's too, it's too costly. It's too much of a burden. The U.S. should back off and let other countries pay more for their security. So I think there's a real uh, wrestling match going on in this country about does the U.S. want to play the role it's played for the past several generations? Or is the world changing and the U.S. needs to uh, find and define another role for itself? Yeah, and that leads right into our next question about... Um what you think we could be doing differently? Well, I think you have to look at the rise of all the other um, countries, the developing countries that are uh, not really developing so much, and where they are developed. Um, you know, I worked overseas for 20 years, and I remember even you know a decade or, or 20 years ago, you would go around to a lot of Asian countries, um, especially East Asia, and they would talk about these being developing countries. There was nothing developing about them. They had the most modern, cutting edge, uh, whether it was transportation, whether it was um, computers, um, you know, they, they, they're developed. And so those countries are going to play a larger role. And there's nothing the U.S. can or, or should do about that. One, I remember one former intelligence official told me something I thought was a really good line that summed it up. He said, um, I remember a world that used to be more dangerous, but I've never been in a world that's been more complicated. So if you look back to the Cold War when the U.S. and Russia had thousands of nuclear weapons pointed at each other, um, it's perhaps not quite that dangerous. They're still there in reduced numbers, but perhaps a little less tense. But it's all the different players out there. It's not just the U.S. and the Soviet Union. There's lots of different countries doing lots of different things. And so it, it, they're, it's not just uh, a black and white Cold War world. It's a very complicated world. And if I may, I, I, I think that's so interesting that uh, the whole the whole underdeveloped country label is almost more part of the uh, American narrative of just having peace of mind in our national security than an accurate representation of the world around us, which I, I just think is an interesting distinction that you pointed out there. Um, I'm going to move into our last uh, question here, and then we'll see if we can take some listener questions. Um, in your opinion... What have the ramifications of the 2001 Authorization for Use of Military Force Resolution, or the AUMF, which gave the President authority to, quote, use all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons he determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11, 2001, or harbored such organizations or persons in order to prevent any future acts of international terrorism? What do you think the ramifications of that 19 years later have been? Well, it was appropriate at the time uh, in 2001, right after the 9-11 attacks. And then there was a second similar AUMF, as you, as you noted, in 2002, which um, was used to authorize the invasion of Iraq. Um, but now those are, as you note, um, 19 and 18 years old. And they're being used for things that have nothing to do with uh, going after the al-Qaeda in Afghanistan or going after um, the Iraqi leadership, which has long since uh, fallen. And Congress has tried to claw back some of that authority. It, it, Congress did not use its authority to declare war um, for, for many wars, not just the, the, the most recent ones. Um, just recently, um, within the past month, the Democrats, um, in the House at least, um, said that the U.S. would passed a, a resolution that the, the president would have to get authorization if he were to 
wage military action against Iran. So you, you are seeing that at least from the Democrats trying to claw back some authority and not leave this blank 20-year-old check there. Right. Yeah. And my question, too, about that is, um, what are your thoughts about uh, these resolutions not having a time constraint? Because this was the same with the Tonkin Gulf uh, resolution, that there is no time constraint on when this would stop being in place. Yeah. I mean, the Constitution is very clear. Congress is supposed to declare war. And in the 1970s, they passed a law that essentially puts like a 60-day clock that starts to tick if, if the president um, sends forces into, into a military uh, conflict or into a war. Basically, he's got 60 days to get approval from Congress. But Congress has not declared formally declared war uh, since World War II. So all of these, these wars we've seen have not been uh, declared. And it, it's really gotten to a position where the, the president— not, I'm not t- talking about this president. I'm talking about several previous presidents as well um, have have used that authority because it's very convenient. It doesn't constrict them. Um, and so they like it. But Congress, I think, has really not shouldered its responsibility. And I'm not talking about either party. I'm talking about all members of the Congress. The institution itself. All right, Greg, uh, we got to get you out of here on time. It's been a real pleasure to have you in here and chat with you. You're Uh, a treasure trove of knowledge and we're lucky that we got you for even just such a short amount of time but i just want to ask you if you have any final thoughts shout outs anything you'd like to say before we move on um, this is an election year. I always think foreign policy is very important. We still have troops in, in three countries fighting war. So I'd encourage people as, as they get involved in politics this year um, to, to think about that and, and look at what the candidates are saying about foreign policy. And I think it always gets uh, overlooked, uh, and yet it often becomes a very important uh, part of any president's administration. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. That has been NPR's Greg Meyer, national security correspondent. We've been very lucky to have him in the studio.